You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. So if you've been coming to church since the beginning of 2024, uh, you will now be an expert, I assume, in the areas of observing the Sabbath, prayer, uh, scripture reading, and last week we looked at, uh, Paul Wolf looked at submission. So you should, at this point, be experts in all that. Your relationship with Jesus should be like just super tight, and uh, you should be, I think there's the heads nodding, I think there's like sort of a level of perfection we're attaining. Good, that's good. Um, if that's not the case, then join the club. Uh, at the very outset of this series on the spiritual disciplines called uh, Renewed Rhythms, we said, let's set the bar low. Let's just kind of inch our way closer to regularly establishing these rhythms, these habits, into our lives um, a little bit more than what we're currently doing. And so for some of us, this means for the very first time, You've started reading your Bible or praying or, um, you know, observing the Sabbath or whatever on sort of like, this is the first time you're doing it. And so, hey, welcome to this world of spiritual disciplines. Great. For others, you've been doing this your whole life for a long time. And this is an opportunity to kind of just recalibrate, recenter and be like, okay, what am I doing this for? How is this going? Is there ways that I can uh, adjust my focus maybe? Um, and so wherever you're at in the practice of these disciplines, the, the idea is just let's continue these. Let's uh, adopt these practices as a way to, well, let's talk about that. Why are we doing this? And again, this is a bit of a refresher. Uh, but we said at the beginning that this uh, idea of practicing spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines, is um, not so that God will love us more. Right? This is not a way to get God to love you more or in any way to coerce God into doing your bidding. A lot of us kind of see God. I mean, we don't ever admit this, but uh, God is sort of functionally this vending machine in the sky. Right? If I just enter the right coins, I can get what I want out of him. I can get him to do what I want. And uh, some of us grow up thinking, and it's pretty messed up, but some of us have grown up thinking, like, oh, if I just pray the right way, or if I just read my Bible enough, or if I just go to church, or if I, do, if I fast, then God will do what I need him to do. And it's a really messed up way of understanding God. And I hope that as we're learning through this series, that this is not why we engage in these spiritual practices. We said at the beginning that we engage... Uh, in these practices, we try to make them a part of our lives, of the rhythms of our week, um, for the purposes of drawing closer to God. To learn to love him more, and consequently to learn to love our neighbor more. And that is the sum total reason, the whole reason why we're doing this in the first place. Um, the late Dallas Willard, who's a philosopher and an author, and he wrote a lot of um, work on sort of spiritual formation through the spiritual disciplines. Uh, And in his book, Renovation of the Heart, he said this, spiritual formation for the Christian basically refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self 
in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. And so these disciplines are a means of spiritual formation. And what are we being spiritually formed into? Well, it says the likeness of Christ himself. That's why we're practicing these things, not for any other reason but this. And so this morning, we want to explore the sixth discipline. If you have your journals, does everyone have their journals? Good. If not, there are journals at the back. Great. I see them waving around. Um, if you don't have a journal, you can pick one up. But this is the sixth discipline. And you'll see that the fourth discipline is fasting, but we're moving that to the end of the series, uh, primarily for two reasons. One, so that we don't screw up the order of the rest of these disciplines. I know some people need that to work in their brain. And truthfully, the second reason is um, because a wise sage once said, why do hard things now if you can put them off until a much later future time? And fasting to me is what I'll just straight up say, I'm not super excited about fasting. I'm going to try it. And we're going to do that as a community. And I think some of us have maybe been doing that already, which is incredible. Um, but yeah, this is the main reason we're moving it to the end. So put all the way, put things that are hard at the end. Kids, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Graham. <laughs> but in this case, we're going to do that. So we're going to go with that logic on fasting. We're going to put that off to the side. And today we're going to focus on the discipline of serving, which I'm sure will be way, way, way easier to talk about. Um, so first of all, why is serving a spiritual discipline? Because it's different than scripture reading, um, or prayer, or fasting, or any of these other. These other ones require just kind of you and God, right? They're just like, it's a discipline that you are practicing, and God's sort of on the other side of this, uh, the, this thing. But with, dis, or with serving, it requires at least another person to be on the receiving end of the discipline. Um, so why are we including it then in this list of of disciplines that we are exploring in this series. And I think the first reason is because we see a posture of serving in the life of Jesus. This is, this is Jesus, Jesus is defined by sort of this uh, attitude of serving. I mean, his life culminated on the cross, which is like the perfect act of service to others. Uh, but all through his ministry, all through his life, we see him constantly serving others, whether it's healing, whether it is even through teaching he's serving. And, um, and, it's, it, and, and, and it's just this sort of overall ethic that he, uh, that he lives by and that he kind of bids his followers to follow and pursue as well. And so um, serving was a big part of Jesus. And, you know, we, we talked about this maybe earlier as well, but we see throughout the Gospels this idea that Jesus was big into fasting and he was big into prayer and he had solitude. That was a regular part of his ministry. And all these other disciplines were regular, just sort of like, just assumed practices of Jesus. And serving was as well. And so in the same way that we follow Jesus through the disciplines of fasting and prayer and all these other things, because that's what we saw him do. We want to do the same with service. And the other reason is sort of the big idea, and this is at the top of your journals um, on this section. We work with our hands to fulfill the calling of Jesus to care for the vulnerable and learn to serve one another by revealing, and, and doing this, we're revealing God's kingdom. 
And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But that's the second reason. This is what God's kingdom looks like. The, 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 when it's embodied, um, when the kingdom of God is embodied, when it takes on flesh, this is what it looks like. It looks like our hands and our feet postured toward others to care and serve them. And I was thinking about this particular um, discipline a bit this past week, and I kind of asked myself the question, do I or am I naturally inclined to serve others? And I guess you can ask my close friends or my family if that's true or not, but my immediate response was actually kind of, um, sort of, sometimes at least, or I guess it depends on the situation and how inconvenienced I am by it. Um, and, but typically I think like, oh, I, I actually am okay serving. And so it's not like a really hard thing. Um, and that sounds prideful, but I assure you there's a lot of caveats to that. Um, here's what I mean. Let me tell you this. So last year I was, um, coming home from work on Central or on Balmoral here. I was right by the, uh, Nova, the Scotiabank turnoff there. Um, so coming this way, coming, moving north on Central. I'm on my bike. And I see on the other side of the road, a car pulled over, and this gentleman was struggling to get uh, the car off the, off the road and into um, the Scotiabank parking lot. And so I stopped on my bike, and I looked at him, and I was like, I'm, so I'm on the other side of, the, of Balmoral. He didn't really see that I saw him. And I thought, there's these questions that kind of ran through my head. Um, it, and it was like instantaneous. It wasn't like I sat there and had a checklist that I went through, but these questions about my own well-being, my own convenience, my own time, my priorities. And uh, I thought, okay, well, I don't really have anything going on tonight, so I can spare some time. I thought, um, is this going to be super annoying to do this? Eh, it'll probably take like two minutes. Okay, I can swing that. You know, and so I went through this sort of checklist, mental checklist really quick and realized this qualifies as something that won't be too burdensome on me. So it counts for service. Let's go do this. Plus, then maybe it'll tell, you know, I'll tell a really great story after and I'm a sucker for a good story. Um, and he's going to say thanks and I'll just feel really good about myself. Well, I crossed the road. I, um, I gave him a, I said, I, he didn't speak English. So I was like, oh, this Okay. I'm like, want me to help you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, okay, sure. It, the whole thing took maybe 30 seconds, a minute. Um, and then he didn't thank me because he didn't say anything. He didn't speak English. I was like, okay. And uh, I was on my way. And that was the story. It wasn't a great story. It was really lame. And so I kind of was like, oh, all right. Well, I guess it's, uh, that's all it is. And I think for most of us, and maybe even all of us, we do stuff like this, and we don't really think too hard about it. We're like, yeah, but is that serving? And on one level, it is. And I don't want to take us that away, and I don't want to say, like, no, stop doing that. Of course, we want to be inclined to that. Um, but for the sake of... Um, this discipline, for the sake of serving as a discipline, I want to challenge us to go a little bit deeper than that understanding of service. And so I have this definition, and it's super clunky. I, I wrestled with, like, how do I word this in a way that is snappy? I didn't get there. But here's what I am defining serving as a discipline as. This is specifically serving as a discipline. Making a habit 
of choosing to respond to need around us as it arises until we no longer require consideration to respond to need around us. I told you it was clunky, I'm sorry. But what I'm trying to get at, if I can just kind of like fumble through this a little bit better, um, right, right now serving in ways that truly cost something of us, or for most of us, does not come naturally, right? We have to put a concerted effort to do that. And so this is why we want to practice this as a discipline. When we see need to respond to that need, to like lean into it and be like, okay, you know what? This is inconvenient. This, I don't have time for this. This is going to cost me something. But I'm still going to choose to serve in this capacity. And doing that in such a, ha- a habitual way that eventually we don't even have to think about it. We just do it. We see a need, we're moved to compassion, and we respond. That's the goal, I think, of Jesus' followers, to become, like, the, for our heart to be so aligned with Jesus that when we see need around us, we just automatically like, oh, okay, I can do this. And we don't think about our own sakes, our own well-being. Um, we put that aside for the sake of the other in this immediate need. Um, and I want to unpack this statement a little bit further this morning, and I, and I want to use the story of the Good Samaritan, which is one of the most, if not the most, um, common stories. You don't even have to go to church. Uh, you don't have to have been raised in the church. Most people know this story of the Good Samaritan. It's a brilliant story. And so this is chapter uh, 10 out of Luke, uh, verse 25 to 37. And we're just going to read it together, and then we'll take a look at it a little bit more in, in depth. So, sorry if this is too small. Again, this is Luke 10, 25 through 37. Jesus, uh, the text says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? Excuse me. He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. That's, there's eternal life. You want that? Follow that. Good. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So let's stop there just for a sec. And again, I know this story is familiar to all of us, and for good reason. It is a beautiful story that provides striking clarity, uh, addressing the question of who our neighbor is, right? Um, And as anyone knows, the story can attest, our neighbor is not just those who we know, who are our friends and our family, those we're familiar with. Uh, But according to the story, our neighbor is the one who inconveniences us. Our neighbor is the one who makes us uncomfortable. Our neighbor, and we'll see this elsewhere, is our enemy. The person we least like to help is our neighbor. And again, this is the, the sort of obvious interpretation, and this is the immediate um, meaning from this parable that Jesus tells. But just like all of Jesus' stories, there are always multiple layers. There's always like so much else that you can glean from his teachings, which is just the brilliant way that Jesus teaches. And so in this story, there's another layer that I think we can understand sort of the, the intricacies, intricacies of service through this story. 
And again, it's not to take away sort of the overt meaning of who is our neighbor. He's, he's obviously addressing that. But there is another sort of lesson that we can gr- gr- glean from these as well. So verse 30 says, In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down the, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went away, leaving him half dead. And so we've got this victim of violence lying on the side of this dangerous road. He's Jewish. He's left for dead, so he pretty much looks dead. Um, And so the stage is set. Continues. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So we've got these two religious Jewish leaders en route to Jerusalem. They're going the other way. And uh, presumably they are en route to take part in their job, which would be religious rituals in the temple. And so instead of stopping, they actually go out of their way to go to the other side of the road to kind of like, oh, I didn't see him, oops, and just keep moving, right? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And one pastor I listened to noted that the expert in the law had such disdain for the Samaritan people that he couldn't even stomach saying the Samaritan. He had to say the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And as we try to understand the discipline of service and we rip it apart and kind of look at its essence, Um, again, this story shows us sort of like the whole, it just shows us what that looks like. And so we begin to understand service by considering the initial response of the Samaritan as he encounters the need. It says, he took pity on him. In other words, something stirred up inside this guy and the very first first two passerbys couldn't muster up, and that was compassion. He had compassion. And in my mind, this, this is where service has to begin, I think. But it's also, these days, maybe the hardest thing for many of us to muster up. And it's not because we don't care. I think many of us care. Most of us do. And if not, then maybe we need to start there. But I think most of us have a a posture of care. I'm going to assume that we do. But the problem is we live in an age where there are pressing needs thrown at us everywhere we look. Amen? In our community right here, we hear of people who are struggling 
in their families, and their finance, and they're like, oh man, we got to help there. And then we turn out into the community at large, and we see folks struggling with addiction and struggling with homelessness, and we're like, oh man, we gotta, we got to help there too. And then we get home, and we start scrolling on our phones, or we turn on the TV, and it's like cause after cause, and need after need. And, you know, you, you, you look at the international situation with, like, the war in Ukraine and, and Gaza, and you're just like, oh, man, I don't know where to even begin. There's a term for this. It's called compassion fatigue. Have you heard of this word before? Compassion, you're just like, I'm just burnt out from caring, and, or from even, not even maybe from caring, but from the potential of caring because there's so much need around me. And I, I have felt this, I think, especially in the last few years, maybe. Um, and at least for myself, I think what compassion fatigue does is, first of all, it plays on my mental health. Um, it is discouraging. I, it's sort of filled with despair. But then it also paralyzes me. You know, I, I simply can't meet all the need that is around me, that's bombarding me. And so I just end up distracting myself with just whatever, whether it's silly Instagram posts or a funny show on Netflix or whatever, and we just like entertain ourselves and we get distracted away and it just takes our attention away from that pressing. How many of you can relate to that? Yeah, okay. I'm glad I'm not the only person here. There's like four others. Um, But let's, first of all, be aware of this tendency, I think. Let's start by acknowledging our propensity toward compassion fatigue, that there is plenty of need, and that it can easily weigh us down and, in fact, paralyze us. But then, let's not allow that to stop us. If we want to incorporate service into our lives, friends, as a habit, um, it needs to begin with having eyes to see the pain and the hurt, And to respond not with indifference as these two Jewish uh, religious folks did, just ignored it, walked on the other side, but to lean in as the Samaritan does, to have compassion, to allow compassion to be the impetus that causes us to serve, or to be the catalyst to compel us to respond to action, to service. But the Samaritan shows us more than just the need for pity and compassion. He demonstrates why service can be difficult and why we are so selective in how we serve and whom we serve. And uh, he does this by showing us or demonstrating what needs to be relinquished in our pursuit of service. And there are five things he pulls out. And I want to just give credit to a pastor. His name's Keith Miller. And I met him. He's with the Jesus Collective. He's uh, the guy who kind of inspired this series, actually. I was chatting with him in the fall about the series on the disciplines. And um, so he had some insights that I thought were quite helpful. And so I'm kind of borrowing from from his teaching on this same topic as well in the Good Samaritan. But there are five things that the Samaritan shows us we need to relinquish if we are going to begin committing to service as a habit, as a way of life. And the first one is time. So verse 33 says, as he traveled, which means the Samaritan is en route somewhere. He's headed somewhere. He's got a destination in mind. He has another agenda. 
But then he noticed this, this man and he allows this man to hijack his plans, his time. Verse 35 says, the next day he took out two denarii and gave him, which means 24 hours of time have passed, ish, right? And then he stays with the victim all night. And then we see at the end of this, verse 36, he says, when I return, which means, okay, I'm planning on spending even more time caring for this guy on my return. And so the first thing we see after the initial response of pity and compassion is that there is a sacrifice, a relinquishing of time. If you're going to make a habit of service, you need to acknowledge and be prepared to have our time, our calendars, our agendas upended. And it's not too bad when you're coming home from work and you see a car on the side of the road and you think to yourself, I don't really have that much going on tonight. I think I can swing this. No problem. That's one. That's okay. It's a bit different when it's you know, the big game is on this afternoon or this evening. I got to get home, make sure I get on time. Now things are starting to affect me. Or um, I know my wife wants me home so I can help with dishes and with the kids and whatever. I, I, I've had this other obligation. And so I'm not here to tell you what is worth sacrificing your time and what isn't. Um, that's between you and Jesus and your spouse. But um, all I know is that serving others will require a sacrifice of time, which can often mean something else that was priority must become lesser priority. And in our learning to serve, we are forced to ask ourselves this question, is my time, my schedule, my agenda worth interrupting for the sake of helping others? And so the first thing that gets interrupted is time. And the second is our priorities, which follows from this. And uh, again, we see this with both the Levite and the priest. Now, it helps to understand that both of these men valued ceremonial cleanliness. And that was closely tied to the work that they did in the temple. Right? If you were to encounter a dead person um, as a priest, you would be considered ceremonially unclean for two weeks which means you couldn't do any work in the temple for two weeks. And so one of two things would have happened here. Either they stop and they start caring for this guy and they get blood and all this stuff around them, which makes them ceremonially unclean and they have to go through a bunch of stuff, which detracts them from their work. Or the guy's actually dead. They don't know. He's on the, they're on the other side, so they're not actually sure if he's dead. But this is maybe the thought that's crossed in their mind. Is he dead? If so, that's going to really alter my plans, my priorities. And so either way... Um, either way, they couldn't perform their duties in the temple if they started caring for this man that's sitting on the side of the road. And the thing that separated the Samaritan from the two religious leaders is that, sure, he had an agenda as well. He was going somewhere. Um, he was traveling. But for the Samaritan, he was willing to reprioritize based on the need that was immediately presented before him. Whereas the Levite and the priest were not. They were not willing to do that. They deemed their priorities as more important than caring for the needs of this individual that is lying on the side of the road. And I like the way that uh, this Keith asks. He says this. He said, how will things carry on if I take my eyes off of myself and care for another? How will things carry on if I take my eyes off myself and care for another? What is it going to look like for me to serve in this moment? 
when I stop thinking about my priorities and I actually care about what's happening right here? And that's a tough question, but a good one. And again, that's going to be between you and Jesus to sort out in any given situation. But the goal, the pursuit for us as followers of Jesus is to be increasingly willing to relinquish our priorities for his. The third is our prejudices. Time, priorities, and our prejudices need to be relinquished. And again, I'm going to go back now to what we were saying earlier about just this relationship between Jewish people and Samaritans. It was one of utter disdain. There was all sorts of baggage. I think many of you have heard this before, I'm sure, in your stories of listening, or in the past, listening to stories of the, great, of the Good Samaritan. You'll know just how much this people group hated this people group, and it was vice versa. And there was all sorts of baggage, and there's just this history there. But the hatred um, between these two groups, it might be comparable if, um, for us to kind of understand this, if today uh, we heard of a Palestinian helping um, an Israelite, right? And there's like, like, there's just this intense animosity. Or maybe closer to home, if we saw a trans person leaning over and helping a guy in a mega hat, right? Like these are ideologically opposite people. And yet in that moment, in that need, the one has compassion on the other, puts aside his prejudices, puts aside all of the baggage, the race differences, the, the cultural differences, the ideological, the, the, the religious convictions that are different, the different doctrinal beliefs, whatever, all that stuff is put aside in order to meet the need that is right there. And there is zero hesitation with the Samaritan. That's the thing that gets you. There's, there's, no, there's no consideration, oh, should I do it? I don't know, this guy's got a mega hat on. What are people, people going to think if they see me caring for this guy? Are they going to associate me with that? Because I don't want, no, there's none of that. He just leans in and cares. And the reason why is because need is need regardless of skin color, race, politics, or any other polarizing ideology that might otherwise cause us to think twice about serving others. That is not as important as meeting their needs right in this moment. And think about it. It it is much easier to serve people who look like us, who think like us, who act like us. And if we're not motivated by compassion and pity, if we don't let our hearts lead in these circumstances, then we will have enough time to allow our prejudices, our prejudices to get the better of us and to cause us to not serve others. This is why we want to build a habit of service, to lean in every time that opportunity presents itself and say, no, I know what? Man, I don't like this guy. This guy is considered my ideological enemy, but I'm still going to help them in this moment. At the heart of Jesus' way, the thing that distinguishes him from any other ideological system, uh, any other religion, is this fundamental ethic. And I've said this my entire life as a follower of Jesus. But this is what is at the heart of who Jesus is. He calls us to love our enemies. Like the people who are so against us. 
that we are to care for them, the ones we are most prejudiced against, and maybe even justifiably so. Maybe we're justified to have that posture of enmity, that posture of seeing them as an enemy. Like, I don't know what the reason is, but they, he calls us to love them most of all. Can I just read this to you? This is, um, if you've been following that Bible reading plan that we talked about during the scripture reading thing, this is in your reading from this past week. And I read it every morning, and every morning I squirmed in my seat as I read it, because I'm like, oh, what is it? There's got to be another way of understanding this. This is what Jesus' words are. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than anyone else? What distinguishes you from anyone else? Don't even the pagans do that? Don't even non-Christians do that? Everyone cares for their friends. I'm calling you to care for your enemies. I'm I'm calling you to care for the people you really don't like, the people you hate. Love them. Like that is, I, I, I read this this week and I was just like, oh gosh, this is so uncomfortable because I do not do this. I don't do it well. And I can justify every single time the opportunity comes to reach out to help. I can justify why I'm in the right to not help them. And we see in the Samaritan a complete disregard for any justification. And just to say, you know what? I'm going to lean in and I'm going to care for this person. And then the fourth thing, this thing's getting intense. The fourth thing is just very practically speaking, we give up our resources. The Samaritan, again, without thinking cost to himself, he pours oil and wine onto the infection and to help with healing, uh, and then he pays for his in, uh, time at the inn, there is a cost to serving, literal cost to serving. And so let's just acknowledge that it can be hard to part with our resources, whether it's our time, our money, our goods, whatever it is. Um, Miller notes that this relinquishing of our resources is so hard, and that's why Jesus says It's the only thing that rivals God. Think about it. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't. But when we acknowledge this challenge, this difficulty to part with our resources, when we name this conflict that we're feeling, the resistance that we have to it, then maybe we can begin to learn generosity in fresh ways. And then lastly, service requires the release of our comfort. There's so much that causes discomfort for the Samaritan in this story. We see him, you know, getting down there and addressing the wounds and getting his hands all bloody. Like, that's pretty gross. Uh, And then we see him putting him on the donkey and, you know, walking beside him on the road. And and that could have made a very precarious situation because, remember, this is a dangerous road, right? And so this dangerous road is full of robbers. And by putting a man on your donkey and walking him down into Jericho, you're putting yourself at higher risk of being robbed by these other guys or by these robbers. So now you're more at risk. Like, that is not a comforting thing. 
And so foregoing one's comfort for the sake of others is at the heart of service. And I think it covers all four of these previous things, right? Like it's sort of the, the blanket statements. Like, yeah, if you give up your time, you give up your priorities, you acknowledge your prejudices, that's going to make you uncomfortable. All of that will make you uncomfortable. So again, acknowledge that your comfort will be compromised when you commit to an act of service and especially a habit of service. Our time, our priorities, our prejudices, our resources, and our comfort. Now, the irony is that although, and this is sort of the counterintuitive way of Jesus, that, yeah, there is a cost to following him. We know this. There is something that is going to hurt, right? The heart of us that we have to give away. Um, but there is always something that is gained. This is the beauty of following Jesus. And, and I'll tell you, the thing that is gained is well worth the cost. And I'll say, so three things that I have gained when I've served. This is what I've noticed, and I, this is my experience, but I know that this is true for all of you. The first thing is perspective. Um, I remember right before Christmas, we helped out with the Christmas hampers, packing hampers at CAS. Um, and there were a few others in this community who joined as well. And that was an act of service that, if I'm honest, I was not really looking forward to doing, right? Because um, who wants to gather on a Friday night in a stuffy office and pack gifts that are being sent out to strangers. But throughout that evening, we were hearing stories of the need, you know, obviously no names or anything like that, but just stories of the need that are within our own community here in Thunder Bay and throughout the district. Need that I could not relate to in my own circumstance. But man, was it ever good for me to hear of that. And I went home that night and I said to Rhonda, I said, I think I'm taking for granted just how good I've got it. And that's not to downplay the hardships in our lives. Like, we all have struggles. I'm sure of it. Um, but serving others gives us perspective on our situation. And that leads to the second thing, which is gratitude. When we are given perspective, it allows us to step back, look around at our own circumstance, and just be grateful for what we've got wherever we're at. Again, this has been my experience, but it's gratitude that comes out of a perspective that recognizes the blessings in our own lives, that allow us to have the time, that allow us to have the resources, that allow us to hold the prejudices we hold, that allow us to have um, the priorities that we hold, that if we were to compromise those things in that moment, it won't be the end of the world, that we'll be able to get along just fine. Like that is a place of privilege. And we ought to be grateful for that. And the third thing is hope. Um, and we mentioned at the beginning just how easy it is to become paralyzed with compassion fatigue, which comes from just the burden of despair that is all around us. And there's never a reason, never a shortage of reasons to feel hopeless. But serving others gives us moments that reveal slivers of hope that the world just maybe isn't one giant dumpster fire, right? And maybe there's actually some goodness out there. Um, and not just because of our serving, but in the world around us too. When we carry out acts of service, sure, we're proving to ourselves that hope is there, that self-giving, others-oriented uh, love it can still be seen in our world. But more than that, we show the world around us 
that it's true too. And when we witness others serving, that's a testimony to us. We also get to be partakers of that hope. And if hope is contagious, then it stands to reason that serving others is itself contagious. And it's true. Someone signs up for helping out with CAS, and it says, you know what, I think I could do that too. And so we do that. Someone says, hey, there's a family in need who needs um, wood chopped. Hey, let's sign up and do that. And all of a sudden, there's like 20-some people doing that. Because hope is contagious. Serving is contagious. When we see people serving others, oftentimes we are motivated to join in with that um, positive, joy-filled, hope-filled experience. And we all intrinsically know that this is something we need more of in our world. Right? Again, draw attention to your journals where it says, uh, we work with our hands to fulfill the calling of Jesus to care for the vulnerable, learning to serve one another, revealing God's kingdom. Do you know what God's kingdom looks like? This is what it looks like. This is uh, global positive news on Instagram. It took me 30 seconds to find these. Walmart cashier, 82, retired after TikTok, raised 166000 to help him. I hate TikTok, but then I look at this, I'm like, yeah, maybe it's not so bad. Uh, humble bike recycler, gives back monthly to the food bank that once helped him. A barber helps transform a young burn victim who permanently lost his hair. A man gives up his first class seat to an 88-year-old lady, making her dream come true. And I'm just like, that's beautiful stuff. You know, these are, um, you can find more content like this on your positive news or global positive. There's like a thousand of these kinds of feeds out there that you can just subscribe to if you need to be filled with hope and inspiration, which we all do. If you need to be encouraged to begin serving others. But you see what happens when you see service taking root like this? And you're like, oh man, imagine that we all stepped up more intentionally to help others. To do silly, simple things like this. And maybe it won't be all beautiful and glorious. But there's always going to be a sliver of um, what one might say the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And our acts of service reveal that. Little by little. Um, This is what new creation looks like. This is what we as followers of Jesus get to contribute to and live into. The new heavens and the new earth that are beginning to poke through even now in our midst. This is that. So if you're struggling with serving others, go find sites like this and follow them. Uh, or right here in our community, find ways that you can begin to more intentionally serve others as a spiritual habit, as a way of life. When we see circumstances that, um, in, that, that cause us to respond with pity and with compassion, let us learn to not ignore it. Let us lean into serving. Amen? Um, yeah, I think that's all we want to say this morning. That's a long message. Oh, boy, we got to get these things shorter. We'll work on that. I invite the musicians to come back up. Um, let us turn now to the bread and the cup. And I thought this morning, um, I'd read just this section. Uh, I've read this in the past as well. Just this, uh, I don't even remember where I got this. But anyway, somewhere on the internet. Um, so I invite everyone to stand. I think we're there.
Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All who come to me shall not hunger, and all who believe in me shall not thirst. With Christians around the world and throughout the centuries, we gather around these symbols of bread and juice, these simple elements that speak of nourishment and transformation. God, we thank you that you are as close to us as breath, that your love is constant and unfailing. We thank you for all that sustains life, and especially for Jesus, who teaches us how to live out an ethic of justice and peace and service. And for the promise of transformation made manifest in his life, death, and resurrection. This morning, we ask you to bless this cup and this bread. And through this meal, make us the body of Christ, that we may join with you in promoting the well-being of all creation. Amen. You are welcome to the table.